I invite you to turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. May the Lord help us all to count our blessings as we're here in this house today. Whenever we are weighed down by that it would pale in comparison to what we have in Christ, what He has done for us, is doing for us, and will yet accomplish in us and for us. We are in the book of Hebrews, and we've come now to chapter 3. I think this is message number 20. I imagine we'll move a little more swiftly as we carry on through our study here, certainly looking at a few more verses this morning. The opening six verses will take up our attention. So let us read from verse 1, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. It was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Amen. May God bless His Word and give us light in it this morning. Let's pray. God, please do grant Thy benediction upon Thy Word. We thank Thee for the means of grace. We bless thee that as ordinary as they may appear, extraordinary things are accomplished through what thou hast appointed to bless. Grant that blessing today. Take us from a dead letter. Grant that it might be a spiritual letter, that the Word will come with power, will come by the Holy Spirit to every heart, that the kingdom would advance Thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Souls would be saved, thy people strengthened, and that the cause of Christ would advance through all that is being done here today. Come then, melt our hearts, show us thyself, and give power and wisdom to the preacher. I need it, Lord. Grant it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most basic and ancient pieces of advice you will hear in speech class, I would imagine many speech classes will refer to this, is that if you're going to stand before a people, one method is to tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. 
And in a real sense, this is how this letter or this sermon, as we have a reason to believe it was, comes across in the same way. The opening language, the very first sentence, lays out and establishes a launching pad from which the preacher, the apostle, is going to enter into. A profound statement packed with theological significance, elevating Jesus Christ as the superior one. And then he begins to flesh it out. He begins to give us greater understanding on what this one is and what he has done. We have already seen that he argues from seven Old Testament scriptures how Jesus Christ must be superior to the most elevated creatures of God's creation. The angels, the most powerful created servants. But Jesus Christ is the eternal, omnipotent Son. In addition, the angels are uh, made to serve man, not the other way around. Man, the crown of God's creation, receives ministry from the angels, elevating the position of man in God's order. So Christ then, being both God and man, is superior to angels in both natures. They worship Him and serve Him in His pre- and post-incarnate state. He is greater than them. He is higher than them. He is more elevated than them in various ways that have been considered. But what about the most honored man in Old Testament history? Can he compare to Jesus Christ? How is he to be viewed as one spans the history of time? Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest man, perhaps, of the entire Old Testament era. It was Moses who was given the responsibility of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was Moses who was given the law of God. It was Moses who was given the pattern of the tabernacle. It was Moses who wrote the foundational scriptures. Can any man be superior to Moses? Moses, the man who met with God in the burning bush, the man who mediated judgment upon the Egyptians, the man who received the law from God on Sinai, the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible. To the Jew, no one in history was greater than Moses. But today our minds will be directed to one even greater. And because he is greater, because he is superior, you will be encouraged to continue on, to keep looking to him, to hold fast to him no matter what. Every message is declared within a context and the context of the epistle to the Hebrews was one of great trial. Never forget that when we come to consider each sentence in this book. It is being addressed to a hurting people, a people that are feeling the challenge of their generation. And of all sorts of difficulties facing them, and the answer, the answer is always the same. Ultimately, it keeps repeating itself over and over again. Keep looking onto Jesus. 
That's what we want to do this morning, is it not? Before we come to the table, we don't want to come to the table and then look to Jesus. No, this is why we never, we never, I say it again, we never give consideration to the sacraments without first opening up the Word. It is the Word that directs us to all that is pointed to in the sacraments. So this morning we're considering Christ's superiority over Moses. Christ's superiority over Moses. And four main headings here, simply a consideration, a comparison, a contrast, and a conclusion. Those are the four headings that will help us organize our understanding of this passage. A consideration, a comparison, a contrast, and a conclusion. So as we come to first the consideration, we look at verse 1. Wherefore, that puts us back, we'll be tying in things that proceed because they are relevant. Sometimes the chapter divisions, as I've said before, can be unhelpful, and we kind of uh, pull our thoughts into a box for each chapter, and we need to open them up and see that these are connected thoughts. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The key verb, not just in verse 1, but really it, it taints or colors the entire portion that we're looking at, is this verb consider. Consider. The word can be understood in various ways. To notice, to observe closely, to contemplate, to think about very carefully. And as I say, the impact of it is felt across the entire portion. Now step back. We're being told here to consider Jesus Christ. And we might say to the world that is lost, you need to consider Christ. You, in a condition of unbelief, you that are without Christ need to consider Christ and give serious contemplation as to Him. But the language is addressed to the church, addressed to those that profess to be the Lord's people. And so, yes, we go to the world and we preach the gospel and we go into the various ministries that are evangelistic ministries of this church and we are calling men and women and boys and girls, consider Christ. But, beloved, we never move away from this activity. We never move away from this duty. We never move away from this exercise and spiritual discipline that we're being called to here in this portion. Every one of us should consider Christ. We are coming this morning to the table of the Lord. And I, was, I was thinking about this as I was praying over the weekend. What are we told concerning the Lord's table? What, what, what's one of the dangers? It is that we do not rightly discern the Lord's body. That is to say, we do not rightly distinguish the difference between the holy and the profane. We do not estimate the value of Christ over other things. We come and we participate and it's as if we're sitting at any meal or we are just engaging in some practice that could be done anywhere in any fashion. But it is distinct. To not discern the Lord's body is to come to the Lord's table and not recognizing that we are engaging in holy activity, that by faith we are looking to Christ and thinking seriously about who He is and what He has done. When we place the emblems in her mouth. Faith is to be laying hold of Christ, resting in Christ, considering Christ. 
It's not the same word to discern or to consider. It's not the same, but there are similar ideas certainly involved. So keep that in mind as we come to the table this morning. But let us, as we see this consideration, who should be doing the considering? Who should be doing the considering is the first thing. Wherefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, as the idea of Christ's priesthood arises, which we can see again from the last two verses of the previous chapter, where he has made a merciful and faithful high priest, this is going to be a theme that will be developed and fleshed out more, as I said last time. But as he begins to touch in upon the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and the priesthood in general, themes that relate to the tabernacle begin to come into play. The tabernacle was furnished with various items that were designated holy. If you've read through Exodus and Leviticus, you will know this. They were designated holy. Not because of their moral value, but because they were set apart for divine use. Earthen vessels that were just earthen vessels similar to other earthen vessels, but they're set apart, and in that sense they are holy. So the idea of that is here, not that we are holy in the sense of sinlessness, but holy in the sense of being set, sense of being set apart. We are set apart, brethren. That is the idea. And we are, we are people that God has dealt with in this way. He has taken us out of the world. He has taken us out of our natural state and condition. He has set us apart. In justification, that is what happens. You get set apart. In a moment of time, by an act of God, you're set apart. And you're not to be part of a a tabernacle of the old covenant era, but you are declared to be part of a house. We'll not deal with that now, but... If you read through the opening six verses seven times, you find the word house referred to. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But we're set apart as brethren. That's what we're being told, set apart as brethren. Brethren, again, is a concept we've already considered, isn't it? Because if you go back, go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the idea of brethren... That the brotherhood has already been pointed to and dealt with in terms of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so you, you have here two truths, two truths when you read the word brethren, two truths. Number one, we are in union with Christ. That's the blessing. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. So being called brethren pulls us into that group that Christ identifies with. And he says, these are my people. It is not a shame to say these are my people. But with that union comes a union with one another. That the household of faith. That we're brothers and sisters together. That we can't avoid this. Our joining to Christ joins us to all who are joined to Christ. We were singing of it. Blessed communion. When we consider this this language, this truth, it, 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 it it often is not considered the way it ought to be considered. Brothers and sisters in Christ are family. We are holy brethren. We have been set apart by an act of God. God has set each individual that is His apart. 
and he has joined them together so that they become holy brethren. This is what we are by God's grace. Unlike much of the Christian life, there are things that are objectively true that we are meant to show and live out, and we don't always do a good job of it. So we are meant to love one another, but we don't always do it the way we should, but that is to be found in an evidence of grace in our lives. But going on from that, the sense of family, the sense of community, the sense of hospitality, the sense of union that exists between brothers and sisters has to be lived out. You don't get to ignore. You don't get to ignore others and just live on to yourself. Holy brethren. (laughs) Many of you like to read and uh, you enjoy reading, which is a good thing. And if you don't, I encourage you to enjoy reading. I read a little, even just a short little portion every day, just be in the habit of reading. But there are people who, who, are, who love reading. And you might say, I love reading. But then I ask myself, do you really love reading? Do you? Because let me describe to you what those that love reading are like. <laughs> Yesterday, some of the ladies went off to Winston-Salem and went there for the ladies' meeting. And when my wife returned, she was sharing with me. You know, a number, she was driving her, her vehicle there, and there were a number there. Of course, uh, there was one other teenage girl there with our oldest, with Elissa. And <laughs> the report came back to me that they were sitting in the back of the vehicle, both of them reading. They, they, these are best friends. I, I'm embarrassing them now. I know I am. But I, I, these, it just, I thought, isn't it so... I mean, there are people who enjoy reading, but there are others who enjoy it to the point that their best friend is someone who lets them read. Like, you can both bring a book each, and we're having great fun together because you've got a book and I've got a book, and we don't talk with each other. We just, we just enjoy each other's company. Well, I'm not going to fault them too much on, on their love for reading, but it was just it was humorous to me, humorous to me. But it illustrates something. It illustrates how people can actually be in the same company and not relate and not connect. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't. We're to enjoy each other's company. We're to love what is true about us. We're to honor what God has done in each of our hearts. This means, this means all sorts of things, all sorts of implications I don't have time to get into. I would love to just ponder it, the whole hospitality thing. But, but even when we have our fellowships, the purpose of the fellowships in the evenings downstairs is to, is to give opportunity for this kind of thing. But the danger is that we gravitate to the people we're comfortable with. And every week we sit with the same people as if these, these are my holy brethren. It's only these ones that are my holy brethren. You never actually move and sit with someone you've never spoken with or make, go down. Go down. This is what leaders do. And I say this for those of you who are leaders in this church, elders, deacons, and those who aspire to lead in the church. When you go down into a place like that, you scan the room. You scan the room. And you look for people who may be on their own, or you look for people that you haven't spoken to, or you look for people that you, you, whatever, you're scanning to see where should I be. Not just gravitating to where you want to be, 
But where should I be? That you might minister and be encouragement to people. This is playing out the whole idea of holy brethren. This is no ordinary family. Look again. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That is to say, those that have a share in. To partake is to have a share in. And the question is, a share in what? What do they have a share in? They have a share in a heavenly calling. This points to both origin and destination. The call that brought us into union with Christ and one another is a heavenly call. It doesn't come from the preacher. It didn't come from Paul, the apostle. It came from heaven. It came from heaven. And they were called by God. And it has a destination too because they're called into heaven. Aren't we? The calling that we have received from heaven brings us into heaven. It must. It must. By virtue of the fact we're in union with Christ, we must go to be where He is. Again, you, you see it, the, the opening sentence. What does it tell us about Jesus Christ? That He is set at the right hand of the majesty on high. I can therefore expect that I have a heavenly destination. Which comes out in this, this epistle. It gets developed. The whole idea of a heavenly country will be dealt with. We are a heavenly people. We are going to a heavenly destination. Why? Because the one we're joined to is in heaven. This language is another indication of new covenant blessings. The new covenant more definitively moves us away from the earthly tabernacle into the heavenly. Abraham knew, and we'll find this out, he knew that his call to Canaan included more than earthly land. Some people don't see that. They don't understand Abraham knew more than many give him credit for. He knew it knew more than an earthly land. But it becomes explicit to us all. We are moving into a heavenly land. So we are holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is who should be doing the considering. These are the people, you professing Christ, joined to Christ. Consider, be active about this. But who are we to consider? The apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Apostle, that is to say, sent one. Messenger, that's the idea. Think about the twelve apostles and so on. They were sent. They were given this place as a messenger and a high priest also. So you see these in two ways. The apostle is one that comes to men on behalf of God. One that comes to men on behalf of God. The high priest is one that comes to God on behalf of men. And Christ fulfills both those roles. They have been touched on already. You go back to chapter 2. You look at verse 10. You see him as the captain of our salvation, as a pioneer. There's the messenger leading forward, the apostle. Not just an apostle, the apostle. And he declares divine truth to the people of God. Verse 12 tells us, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. This is what he's doing. This is what an apostle does. He declares God's name. Not just says in some simple way, behold God, but he's fleshing out all that is true about God. He's bringing a message that develops who God is and what he has done. And so this is what the apostle does. And the high priest makes reconciliation. Verse 17 and 18 deal with that. So you have 
on the Lord Jesus in both these roles. And this then is our, look at it, it says the word profession, of our profession. Now that word's okay in as far as it goes, but I, I think when we talk about profession, we often think of something we do. I think the word confession more accurately would reflect what actually is going on here because this is, this is the church's unified declaration. These are objective truths that the church agrees upon. And so the apostle is actually speaking in language you'll find elsewhere in the New Testament with regard to confessions of faith. This is what unifies us. We all agree with this. And here's one of these confessions. That Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of the people of God. We confess that. So that's the consideration. Secondly, a comparison. There is a comparison here as well. Verses 2, 3, and 4 is where you'll find the comparison. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was kind of worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Now you can see why Moses and Christ would be compared. Moses himself was an apostle, wasn't he? He was a sent one. That's what happened at the burning bush. He is being sent. In addition, he functioned as a mediator, coming to God on behalf of the people. But, but there's differences. Moses was sent from the wilderness. Jesus was sent from heaven. Moses stood as a mediator, but Christ stands as high priest. He is making reconciliation in a way that Moses was not appointed to do. So as we consider this comparison, note first a similarity in faithfulness. There is a similarity in faithfulness. Verse 2, who was faithful to him that appointed him, that is Christ, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The particular aspect of Christ that the apostle wants us to consider, and don't miss the connection, it's not just considering Christ generally. There's a connected thought here in verse 2. It's considering Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful. It is considering the faithfulness of Christ. That is what we are to keep in mind and observe. In other words, Paul wants to develop what he has already said in the previous chapter. Again, the wherefore keeps bringing us back. And what has he said about Jesus Christ? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So now he's pulling from that. He's drawing from that reality and developing on this faithfulness of Christ. And in this characteristic, he is compared to Moses and seen as similar to Moses. As also Moses was faithful in all his house. What's that dealing with? You may wish to turn there, at least make a note, if you don't have a reference Bible, of Numbers 12.7. Because in Numbers 12.7, God declares that Moses was, quote, faithful in all mine house. That is the divine testimony concerning Moses. He was faithful. Faithful in all mine house. What house is referred to? What's he talking about when he refers to house? It's the house of God. It is the people of God. It is the nation of Israel. Moses was faithful in Israel. He was faithful in his service to the people. Now, this characteristic of faithfulness, don't lift it out of its context. Again, these are a people being attacked. Their faith is being assailed. They are under tremendous pressure, pressure to relent, 
pressure to walk away. And Moses was faithful. Think of at least two ways. First, he found himself in a wilderness without natural provisions. Read Numbers 11. There was nothing. There was no bread. There was no water. He's in a wilderness. No natural provisions. The cry doesn't come from Moses. He stays faithful. The people begin to murmur. They begin to cry. They're looking for provisions. And God comes and provides. But he himself was in the same circumstances. He was in a position where there was no natural means to provide and needing help. Also, he was under attack by his own kith and kin. Again, Numbers 12, there are these with that very passage, these with Miriam and Aaron challenging his leadership. He's under attack from those who are his own family. Now, again, step back. This is what these people are going through. You go to the later chapters and the exhortations that are given. Some of those exhortations relate to not coveting. And the idea is, don't allow your lust after material things to subvert your faith in Christ. And the context, of course, is the fact that they have been cast aside. Their family have disowned them. They are Jews that have been rejected from their community. They will not support their business. They will not give of their means and all that they depended upon for whatever years they had been serving and laboring and engaging in their employment. Now you have a whole community that says we will not buy a thing from you. And they're suffering materially. And those people that are causing them to suffer are their family. It's those that take the same name. It's their parents, their siblings, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles. These are the ones that hurt most. That's what they're facing. That is what they're going through. And Moses faced the same. And he stayed faithful. He remained faithful. He did not murmur. Some of you are going through similar things. This passage is written to you Consider Christ, who, like Moses, remained faithful. Christ, who had not where to lay his head. Christ, who had nothing. And women followed and gave of their substance to help him survive through his ministry. Christ, who was hated of his family, his half-brothers and sisters, who did not believe in him, John 7 tells us. And he came on to his own, and his own received him not. Yet he remained faithful. So when we compare Christ with Moses, we find that they're both faithful. And this, just as an aside, this is one of the clearest proofs that faithfulness is not equated with sinlessness. Because we ask the question, was Moses sinless? Oh no. Oh no. Now he grieved the Lord to the extent that the Lord forbid him from entering Canaan. He wasn't a sinless man. But he was a faithful man. And this, this is for our encouragement. He was faithful 
Christ was faithful. There's also a distinction here, a distinction in worthiness. There is a similarity in faithfulness, but a distinction in worthiness. Verses 3 and 4. This man was counted worthy, speaking of Christ, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. The meaning of these verses needs a little comment, but do not miss what is being said. Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses for a specific reason. Now, when you see a building, a grand building, it speaks not of the character and abilities of the building. No, none of us are looking at it and thinking, why, what, an, what a great building. It managed to fashion itself that it might look that way. If we're giving honor to the building, we are giving honor to the one who built it. It reflects their character. It reflects their ability. Christ, then, is said to have two things that are distinct, that give him more worthy than Moses. First, he is the builder. Verse 3, This man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. The implication is, Christ is the one who builded the house. Moses is part of the house. He serves in the house. He's a servant in the house, serving others who are in the house. But Christ is the one who builds the house. So he is the builder. Moses was not a builder. He didn't build Israel. He didn't build the nation. He served it, but he didn't build it. And the implication is Christ built it. Christ gave creation to it. Subsequently, verse 4, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. What, what is it saying? Not only is Christ the builder, Christ is God. He is a divine builder. Giving birth to this people that Moses served was the place of Christ. Moses did not do this. And so this is another declaration of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this already. And so Christ has more worth, more glory. Here is where they differ. Moses was one of the people. Christ creates the people, as we've said. And so that comes into the New Testament, doesn't it? Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. That's what Christ does. I will build my church. How does he build his church? What are we doing? We, we serve the church. We don't build it, though. We don't build it. Be careful. Be careful in your language. Certainly at times when, when church leaders talk about their ministry, sometimes they stray into language like they're building the church. No, you're not. Or you're, you're building the kingdom. No, you're not. You're not building it. You're not building it. You serve in it. And so even the apostles, when we read of their ministry and what they did, and we're told in Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. He did it. He built it. Peter preached. The apostles preached. God's people ministered, they served, but the Lord added to the church. And the Jews, the Jews were always in danger of worshipping the house and those that served in the house more than the one that built the house. They had this tendency. 
They, they had it, and we look and we say, well, why, why would, they, why would they, they be taken up with the tabernacle and the temple? This, this whole letter is going to, going to argue the case that these are the shadow of the things to come. Don't, don't look to the shadow when you have the reality. That's going to be one of the foundational arguments. But at the same time, it's not just in the furniture or in the tabernacle and temple. It's also in the people, the people who built these things. The greatness of Moses and Aaron and all the rest. And the warning goes, don't, don't, don't fall into this temptation to elevate them above what you ought. Honor them, yes, but don't elevate them. And we do the same. We do the same. You see it. Denominational loyalty goes to a place that it ought not, for it can supplant honor to Christ and honor of people. Our desire to be led by some new Savior is always just around the corner, whether in politics or in the church. And we get caught up in it, move along with it, and our affections go after it. Let it not be. Let it not be of any of you. It can be so difficult to detect. Thirdly, there's a contrast. There's a contrast. Verse 5. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Here's a contrast. The significant contrast found between Christ and Moses is that Moses should be honored as a faithful servant in the house of God. Christ is worthy of more glory as a faithful son over the house of God. One's a servant, the other's a son. Let's look at it a little more. Moses as a servant, verse 5. The verse states that Moses' faithfulness is something that cannot be disputed. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house. Of a truth, indeed, Truly, this cannot be argued. Why? Because we've already said. Divine testimony in Numbers 12 declares it. God said He was faithful in all His house. So there's no disputing the fact. The certainty stems from divine declaration concerning Him. And we are told in verse 5, Moses verily was faithful in all His house as a servant for a testimony. What's that word? It has the idea of witness. Marturion is the Greek word, which may be familiar to some of you. Marturion. Martyr, someone who bears witness, someone who testifies. The martyrs were called such because they testified even unto death. So the word here is ascribed to Moses who testifies, who speaks. This, this was his primary job. This is what he was, let's put it this way, going back to the thought of the distinction between faithfulness and sinlessness, where Moses is declared faithful, but we know he's not sinless. We ask, in what way was he faithful? It was in this area. His testimony. His declaration. Again, the next verse after where God declares him to be faithful tells us, with him will I speak mouth to mouth. He was faithful in communicating the mind of God. And so he becomes the prophet. Quoted many times to Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. 
I've said this before. It's amazing. What, what, what is being revealed there in Deuteronomy 18 is that when you're looking for the prophet, look for someone like Moses. If I was to say to someone, if you were to think of it this way, when you're looking for Christ, look at me. If you see what's in me, the characteristics of me, you will see what to find in the Messiah. I think we would shy away from that. They're very poor reflections of the Lord Jesus. But this is what Moses is set apart to be. The prophet will look like Moses. He will be like Moses. And so Moses then is faithful in his testimony. But what is he testifying to? What is he speaking about? Well, he's speaking about those things which were to be spoken after. He is testifying of divine truth. Now, just step back for a moment. The word here of testifying is used throughout the New Testament. The very same word is used of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, where it speaks of them with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're testifying to the resurrection. A related word, of course, is found in Acts 1, 8, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and so on. But what is Moses witness to? Is he witnessing of the resurrection? Is he witnessing of the same thing? He's witnessing of those things which were to be spoken after. In other words, Moses was to testify and did testify of the things that God was going to do for his people in the future. Well, what specifically? I say to you, he preached the gospel. He preached the person and work of Christ. Now, we have clear testimony that this is true. In John 5, 46, when our Lord Jesus says, Had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. What is the purpose of the Pentateuch? What are those first five books of your Bible telling you about? What are they pointing you to? Jesus says, me. Moses wrote of me. So when you read, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. He's pointing to me. Every time you're dealing with God's revelation to men, you're seeing something true about Christ. That's what Moses was faithful in declaring. And let me just stop there. Beloved, you're not going to be sinless in this life. You're not coming to this table sinlessly. You're not. That's why it's communicating to you the means whereby you can come. It's communicating to you the grounds of your forgiveness. It's reminding you, yes, you are a sinner, but there's forgiveness. As we thought of a Wednesday night, there is forgiveness. So your faithfulness is found in your trust and testimony of Christ. Your trust of Him your testimony to him. You keep trusting him. Even when you don't understand. When it doesn't make sense. 
and keep trusting Him. And when you stand before people and you're afraid of what they might think, you keep testifying. Let them think what they may. I will testify and point to Jesus. So you have Moses as a servant. This is how he served. He was faithful in all his house as a servant, testifying of those things which were to be spoken after. Christ then, as a son. Christ as a son over his own house. Here's a distinction. It doesn't matter what Moses achieved or what he did. The house was not his to govern. Christ is the son who governs. He is the divine son, which takes you back. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Speaking of him, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. This is the son. No one can compare to him. Which brings us finally to a conclusion. There's a conclusion here at the end of verse 6, just before we close. Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Note. Note a little, a scary little word in there. If. Whose house are we if? You see, the question you need to ask yourself is, am I part of his house? Does he govern over me? Am I in that body? Am I part of the holy brethren? Have I heard the heavenly calling? Have I experienced it? I look down on you today, beloved. This is something only you before God can examine. And you need to examine it. You need to examine it. The language of uncertainty is not because salvation is uncertain. It's because man is uncertain. But what is true about the people of God is that they will hold fast to the end. It's the perseverance of the saints. Or as some like to reword it, the preservation of the saints. Those who are truly saints will be preserved. They will. They must be. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But what does that look like? What does that look like? Does it look like pointing to a decision card you signed in the past? No. Does it look like a historical event where you say, I prayed on this date at this time with this people? No. It looks like considering the apostle and high priest of your profession. And it looks like going on, holding fast, no matter what. Do you know you're in the house that Jesus governs? There are a lot of people in Greenville that start at the race and dropped out before the end. A lot of them. Some of them are in your family. You don't know where they are before God. You don't know. Why? Because they didn't hold fast. They are not holding fast. They dropped out. 
they may still go to a house of worship. They may still participate in corporate life to some degree. But you can't help, you can't help wondering, are they still holding fast? Well, you may never know. But don't be too concerned about them, at least not to the detriment of your own condition. The first century church was littered with dropouts. Read your Bible. All sorts of people dropped out. All sorts of people did not hold fast to the end. Some of them were part of the apostolic company. They ministered with Paul. They heard the greatest preacher. Whether it be Jesus Christ or the apostles that followed him, they heard preaching the like of which the world has never heard. And they dropped out. So, are we beyond the experience of people dropping out? No. No. No, 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 no. No, you may be here this week, and I don't know where you'll be next week. So, every Lord's Day, and, and every Lord's Day, in some degree, is an effort, whether explicit or implicit, it is calling you to hold fast. Child of God, those of you who profess faith in Christ, hold fast. The pressures, the billows, the challenges, the difficulties, the hardships, the disappointments, the horrors, the nightmares, the depression, discouragement, all of it. Hold fast. What are you to do? Hold fast to confidence. That is, remain confident. Remain confident in Christ. Of course, that's the idea. Remaining confident in Christ. So you might say, remain confident and rejoice in your hope. Remain confident and rejoice in your hope. Rejoicing of the hope. The hope where faith latches on to unseen realities. It's going to be developed later in Hebrews. They saw things they couldn't see with a physical eye. But they saw them. They saw it. They saw it for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Others couldn't see it. But the faithful could see it. The faithful still see it. And so we rejoice in our hope. Rejoice in our hope. What's that hope? It's that hope of all that is laid up for us, all that Christ has accomplished for us. All that he has promised to us. I go to prepare a place for you. He goes. He's gone. I think sometimes we read that text and we imagine he's going there to build something. Instead of, he's going to the cross to prepare a place for you. That's involved. Has to be. I'm going there to lay down my life to prepare a place for you. Where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to open up heaven. That's what's going to come through in this. 
Again, look at the end of verse, chapter 4, verse 14, saying then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. It comes up again. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, so trust and testify. Keep trusting. Keep testifying. You'll not be sinless, but you can be faithful. And you're looking for it, aren't you? Matthew 25, that's what you're looking for. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We look for that. But some of you, some of you maybe need to take stock. You have to take stock. Because your spiritual life is stagnant. You know it deep down. It's stagnant. You know where you are. You're cold. You're learning nothing. You feel nothing. You expect nothing. You're a shell, a spiritual shell. There's no vitality, no spiritual interest, no spiritual discussion. Talking to you about the joys of Christ is like trying to get blood from a stone. There's no life in the soul. There used to be. There used to be. There's not today. No zeal, no heart, no love, no tears, no concern for the lost. No real recognition of your current condition before God. You're cold, critical, hard. You come to the table and it says nothing. You're not going to discern the Lord's body and eat and drink. Damnation! Consider Him, beloved. Consider Him. And cast your eye over the past week and ask yourself, are there not things that are stopping you from proper contemplation of Christ? Things you need to have away with, done with, cut out, do surgery for the benefit of your spiritual life. You have to. There are sins you won't, you won't seek forgiveness for because you maintain, you maintain your innocence. You're too proud to acknowledge your sin in the matter. And you get hard. Oh, consider, consider the apostle and high priest of your profession. Contemplate him. What does he say? He reaches out and he, he says, don't be proud. It's the broken and the contrite I help. It's the one who says, help me, Jesus. I can't do this. It's the one who keeps looking and believing and trusting and hoping no matter what. Consider him. May God help us. May God help you today. Let's bow together in prayer. God, we pray for grace. Our lives are filled with clutter that drowns our hope, starves us of spiritual oxygen, prevents us from growth and grace. And we are teetering on the edge of dropping out altogether. 
God, bring a fresh baptism of conviction of sin. Give a fresh vision of the beauty of the cross, of the glory of Christ in all that he has accomplished. Do something that will melt our stout hearts. Something that causes the things of earth to go strangely dim. Oh God, even as we take these emblems and pass them from our hand into our mouths, may our eyes open to Christ. We would see Jesus. Hear us. Help us. Hold us. We pray in Jesus' name.